Good to see all of you. I invite you to turn with me to the book called John. The book called John, more commonly called the Gospel of John. This is one of four biographies that we have of Jesus. It is very different than the other three, largely because it was written or compiled later, much later than the other three. Um, Both Matthew and Luke borrow from Mark, so they're kind of related. But John, on the other hand, developed completely um, separately and almost not quite a, a different tradition, and it's, it's considered to be a little more of a heady book, a little more intellectual or a little more theological. So if you open up your Bible and go about two-thirds of the way back, you're going to come across Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then finally John, or if you have a Bible app, you can just tap it in, <clears throat> which seems to be the trend of these days, I've noticed. So we're going to be in um, John because uh, it, it is different. There are, are certain stories that we find in John that we don't find in the other, other Gospels and the other biographies. And because of that, um, we get another picture of Jesus. Uh, um, uh, it, it helps kind of fill in, not necessarily the gaps, but kind of gives us a more robust understanding of who he is and, and how he was viewed by the early church. So we're going to be in John chapter 2 because this is the story we're going to pick up because we don't find this story in any of the other Gospels. John chapter 2. If you've grown up in the church, there's a very good chance you've heard this story before. Um, But there's some things in here that that I think are important that we pull out and examine. So I'm going to read this story, then we're going to examine it a little bit, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit further. Okay, everyone everyone with me? Sound good? John chapter 2 beginning with verse 1. Let me read this. I'm going to sit down while I do it. Here we go. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you? (laughs) You've saved the best till now. This is the first of the miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would just add your blessing to the reading of your word, and ask you that you would speak to us through this story in the same way that you've spoken to countless of generations before us, and, and even that you would speak to us in the same way that you spoke to the individuals represented in the stories themselves. God, help us to see just a little more of you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 
let's take a look at this in more detail. You are all chuckling because there's some funny things that are going on here. So it starts with this idea, on the third day, a wedding occurred. Now, if you look in the, the previous chapter, Jesus has acquired some disciples in one part of the country, and they moved. And so what we know from a timing standpoint is that this happened on a Wednesday. A wedding took place on Wednesday. Now, here's something very interesting that I learned just recently. In the ancient Jewish tradition, the rabbis ordained Wednesdays as the day that virgins got married. I don't know what makes Wednesdays more important than any other day to get married, but I would imagine that it's probably the same then as it is now. Wednesday's fine as long as it's in June, right? <laughs> because everyone wants to get married, right? Anyway. So here we are on a Wednesday, um, and there's this, there's this wedding banquet in Cana. Now, Cana is a very interesting place because we have no idea where it actually is located. There's no record um, other than here of where that village was, and it was probably a smaller village, which is why there's, there's not a whole lot to go on. And evidently, Mary is invited, so it's probably a relative of hers or somebody that she knows, but it's in Galilee, and if you can imagine a map of Israel, in the north you have the Sea of Galilee, in the south you have the Dead Sea, right? But in Galilee to the west, so between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean, is this highland area of hills, and Cana is somewhere there. Somewhere there. So it's not you know, too far away from Nazareth, where most likely Jesus and, and, and Mary um, lived. So it wasn't a long journey. And you know, if you have a relative there, yeah, I guess we'll go to the wedding on a Wednesday. Okay? And it wasn't uncommon for the entire village and the surrounding regions to be invited to a wedding feast. Weddings are a big deal in Jewish culture. And on top of it, Jesus is a rabbi with disciples, and so very often, if there was one in the area, they were invited to the weddings too. Because, you know what, it, it's a good idea to have the right reverend show up at your wedding. You might get blessed in some way, right? So the, the rabbi would show up with their disciples, and they're all, they're all involved in this. <clears throat> so there we are in the first couple of verses. We know that uh, it was a Wednesday that it took place at Cana in Galilee, and Mary was there as well as Jesus and his disciples. Now, something very interesting happens in verse 3. <clears throat> when the wine was gone, did you read that? When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Just matter of fact. There's not a request here, by the way. It's, it's, not, it's not like you need to do something about it. It just makes a comment. There's no more wine. Now, we need to understand something here, because remember, we are removed from this in both culture and in time. But there's something else that's happening here in this wedding that's important, and here it is. Most wedding feasts lasted seven days. So we are talking about a big party that happens over a long period of time. Now, those of you who, um, are, who are married, can you imagine going through that for seven days, right? What would you wear <laughs> each time? It's this long, drawn-out process. And uh, they're partway into this, and they've run out of beverage. Now, for most of us, we think, oh, well, that's just too bad. Mm -mm. In that culture, in 
The hospitality rules govern much of everyday life. And there's, there's a reference in some of the ancient rabbis' writings that said that a family who invited others to a wedding feast or a celebration and failed to provide them with enough food or wine is to be listed among robbers. That's harsh. So when we look at this, and Mary makes this comment, they have no more wine. This is a big deal. Because here's what's happening. Socially, this is a catastrophe. Not just for the two families who, who are getting their children married, but also for that young couple who is going to start out life with a kind of social stigma. Oh, that's the couple. They didn't have enough wine. And in a small village, don't tell me that's not going to play. Does that make sense? So you've got a social situation here that is truly, truly tragic. They have no more wine. The thing to remember here is you've got a set of circumstances that we may not understand, but this is desperate. This is a big deal to this group of people. And Mary, for whatever reason, mentions it to Jesus. I don't have any more wine. Look what Jesus says. Okay? In some translations, it's just, woman. Now, don't get too wigged out about that because that was actually a very polite term to address somebody in that day and age. You know, here we are like, woman. Right? No, it's not like that at all. Okay? But this, this idea here is woman, and, and the phrase that he uses in Greek translates a little bit differently. Um, it, it's, it's kind of an idiom that says, what is that between you and me? And so it's appropriate here. Why do you involve me? In other words, why are you telling me this? You know, I can imagine Jesus. Now, this is, this is the David version. This isn't, this isn't necessarily gospel, but it's just kind of like, well, what do you want me to do about it, right? And then he says this. My time has not yet come, or in some translations, my hour has not yet arrived. Later on in the, in the, in the story that John writes to us about Jesus' life, the hour arrived at his death and resurrection. And so there's a little foreshadowing here. We get this idea that, that, well, you know, why are you involving me? This really isn't my concern because my concern is later on down the road. And yet, what does Mary do? Looks at the servants. Do whatever he tells you to do. My boy's going to take care of it. <laughs> right? <laughs> It's funny. It's supposed to be funny. And I get this sense that there's kind of a, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of a thing. Yeah, just, just do what he tells you to do. No pressure, right? <laughs> Fun little story, a little glimpse into that, that relationship. Now, in verse 6, um, <clears throat> we see that there are six stone water jars nearby, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. This would have been very appropriate to have because you have a large group of people who are celebrating, and before you eat, you would have to wash your hands in a very specific way in order to keep, and the word here is kosher. Kosher applies not just to dill pickles, but actually in the way things were prepared and cleanliness laws, and so there's all kinds of kosher laws. So before you would feast, you would wash your hands, and there would be these ceremonial jars, and there's six of them standing there. And Jesus kind of looks at him, and he goes, all right, go fill those up. <clears throat> Um, and they're large, too. Can you imagine 120 to 100? 
and 80 gallons total. I mean, these are 20 to 30 gallons. I mean, that's a lot of water that they're going to have to fill these these stone jars with. And and so um, he says, go fill them up. And the, these servants, they go and they do that. Do that. But notice this: he doesn't force them to. He just says, go fill them up. Now, to be honest, here are the servants going. Well, we got nothing better to do. We got to do something. Um, so, all right, let's go fill these water jars up. So they go and they take care of it. And then Jesus gives them another another thing to do. Draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And so they did. I want you to notice this. This is very odd to me. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Wait, what? There's no place in here where John writes to us, in Shazam, the water turned to wine. It's almost this nonchalant kind of thing. And so when when the master of the banquet tasted the, the water that had been turned into wine, he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he calls the bridegroom aside. Notice that. Then he called. He takes a sip and he goes, hmm, this is interesting. And then he goes, he doesn't know where it came from. doesn't matter to him. He's, he's, the party planner is out of wine. Let me tell you, that, his job's on the line too, right? And so he's, he goes to the bridegroom. Here's what he says. Yes, Lord. <laughs> it's not Sherry this time. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Those nightingales, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> Where was I? Oh, yeah. Okay, he pulls the bridegroom off to the side, and he says, he says this. He makes this observation. Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you've saved the best for last. Now, here's a little tidbit. I didn't, I didn't realize this until I did a little digging. The area that is west of the Sea of Galilee, imagine a map, it's west of the Sea of Galilee, in that hill region between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean, is known for its vineyards and wine. So if you've got a local party planner, a local wedding coordinator, it's a good chance he knows what good wine tastes like because they make it there. And here he makes this comment (laughs) that it's not just good wine, it's the best. Did you notice that? The quality here is what he is noticing. Not the fact that there was a miracle of water turned to wine. He had no idea. All he knew is, wow, this is really good. And if anyone's going to know, it's going to be this guy who's in this kind of role, who lives in this region at this particular period of time. Are you with me? Making a comment about the quality of this. And then he makes this really great observation about, you know what, most people, they wait till everyone's a little, you know, a little tipsy, and then they bring out the cheap stuff. Not you. Not you. You've saved the best until now. And then we get to verse 11. And this is where I think we need to camp out for just a moment. Verse 11. 
Verse 11 kind of serves as a summary. This is the first of the miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, this also kind of serves as a climax. Because if you read the rest of the story, what you would think the climax, water turning to wine, hello, is not the climax. It's, it's just mentioned almost in passing. But here, this is the first of the signs Jesus performed. In Cana of Galilee, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. And the author seems to indicate at this moment why all of this was important. Are you following me? Does this make sense? So as we read through this little vignette, this little picture of this, this miracle, we see that verse 11 seems to be the climax. And I also, also want you to notice in verse 11. So this is the first of his miraculous signs. Now in Greek, the word miraculous does not appear here. It just says signs. In fact, in the entire book of John, miracle doesn't show up. John always refers to these things as signs or wonders. In fact, you can divide the, the entire gospel of John into two halves, the book of signs and the book of glory. The book of signs, the book of glory. Look, he said this is the first of his signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his, what's the word? Glory. And his disciples put their faith in him. So this word miracle doesn't appear, but signs do. And I think this is important because a sign points to something else. We don't look at a sign and say, you know, the important thing here is the actual sign. When you are driving somewhere and you are, are, are headed in a direction, you look for signs, not because, hey, I reached the sign. No, the sign points you to where you need to go, right? <laughs> you stop and ask for directions. Not if you're a man. Not if you're a man, right? <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Because you're looking for a sign. The sign points you to something else. Very, very interesting. Very shrewd observation there. But the sign points us to something else. Now, in this passage, there is symbolism all over. I can't, I, there's, probably, I mean, there's probably four or five different sermons in here just on the symbolism alone in this, this particular story. So what I want to do is I want to offer just a couple of thoughts on this passage. Um. And then, then we're going to try to draw some meaning out of it. So at, at the first, first glance, um, this is a, it's an interesting story, right? I mean, water turned to wine. That's pretty cool. In fact, some of you are going, yes, sign me up for that, right? But that, it's, it's interesting, and we read it, but it's hardly life-changing. Unless it is life-changing. In Israel's history, there has been an ebb and flow. At one point, Israel dominated all of the, the Middle East. And then over a period of time, that power eroded, like a lot of nations. And at one point later on, they are completely overrun by powers in the north. And the best of the best, the brightest, 
The most talented, the wealthiest, are uprooted out of Israel and brought to another part of the empire to live. And we actually have poems where they long and they yearn and they mourn for the fact that they are no longer in Israel, in their own land that God gave them. They're in exile. And it's a, it's a painful thing to read. forced to live in foreign lands and they wanted peace and they wanted to be back where they belonged, but they're not there, this idea of exile. But here's, here's the interesting thing, that while they're in exile, God actually talks to them, speaks to them through certain prophets, prophets like Jeremiah and Hosea, and specifically one named Amos. And I want you to listen to this. This is a prophecy given to Israel while they're in captivity, while they're in exile. He writes this. Uh, This is Amos 9, for those of you who are interested, beginning with verse 13. Lord speaks. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. (laughs) You see, to plant a vineyard and allow the, the actual vines to mature so that they produce fruit takes time. And it takes patience and it takes tending. Those are things that you can't do when you're, when you're, when you're far from home or if you're at war. It takes a, a period of peace. And so very often in the Old Testament we find things like grapes and wine connected with peace in the land. Isn't that interesting? Wine is often the symbol of peace. In verse 13, the days are coming when all of this is going to take place. And when Jesus turned water into wine, he was saying to all of us, the day is now. Do you see that? You see, people would have understood that there was prophecy. And when you see things like wine, and the early church would have read this and would have electrified them because they would understand that wine has meaning in culture that's more than just having a good time. That's part of it. The exile is over. And it has nothing to do with the fact you're living in Israel. There is another reality here about your soul. Exile is over. Also, when we look through this entire story, this little vignette, there's not a whole lot of detail here, is there? I mean, think about it. There's this wedding. We have no idea who it is. It's in Cana. We have no idea where that is. 
and it took place on this day, and Mary's there, but we don't really know the reason why she's there. We kind of can figure out why Jesus and his disciples are there, but there's really not a whole lot of detail other than the fact that they lost some wine. And then you get to the part about the stone jars. I mean, think about this. The detail that John gives us about these stone jars is ridiculous in light of the rest of the story. Here's what we know. Okay, first of all, they're made out of stone. They're not made out of earth, so they're not clay. They're actually carved out of stone. That's number one. Number two, there's six of them. Number three, um, they are between 20 and 30 gallons each, so we know the volume that they take. Number four, they are designated... Um, for a specific purpose, that is to wash your hands before you eat in a very ceremonial, uh, religious way. And that number five is appropriate because there's lots of Jews at this party and that they would, they would need to, to, to be kosher while they ate, right? That's an extraordinary amount of detail given the length of the story. By the way, you never drink from these stone jars. You only wash your hands from them. This is interesting. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus commandeers them. He just kind of looks around and goes, "Uh, those stone jars, go fill them up with water. And somewhere, this miracle takes place, this sign takes place, this wondrous thing takes place. We have no idea how it actually happens. And he takes this old water and he replaces it with new wine. Do you see that? And that stone jar represents in many ways this idea of the Jewish religion and what it's filled with, this idea that we we need to be kosher, we need to be clean, and he replaces it with something else entirely. He exchanges water for washing with wine for celebration. He exchanges utility with joy. It's a beautiful picture because this water, which is important, we need that water, is replaced with something else entirely. And finally, here's the last thing I want you to notice. Who witnessed the miracle? When you look at the text, who was it that knew what actually occurred? Now, the party planner and the bridegroom, they get to see the result of this sign. They get to taste this very good wine. Now, arguably, these are the two most important people at the wedding at that moment in time. These are the top dogs. You've got the the person who's responsible for organizing the entire affair, pretty important, and the bridegroom, we're there to celebrate his wedding. Ladies, I know you don't like it, but that's just the way the culture was. So the two most important people, the party planner and the bridegroom, they're the ones who only taste the result of the wine, but they don't know where it came from. The text is very specific about that. So who's left? Mary, right? Mary probably knew. Of course, all the ladies are going, Mary knew and begin with, that that's what was going to happen, right? (laughs) Mama, no, that's okay. Verse 9, we're told that the servants knew where it came from. 
because they're the ones who filled it up with water and then drew some, some of the new liquid out. They knew. And then in verse 11, we find out that the disciples saw the sign and it revealed Christ's glory <laughs> and they were filled with faith. So essentially what we have is the people who witnessed this, this sign are the desperate, the servants. It's going to fall on them for not having enough wine. It's the way it, stuff rolls downhill, doesn't it? They're the ones who are going to be blamed. And the other people who are witnesses are the nobodies. Again, culturally, women, not highly regarded. And disciples, they're kind of like modern-day interns. <laughs> they get to do all of the work, <laughs> but don't necessarily get all the pay. That's a disciple, right? A rabbi's disciples. The desperate and the nobodies are the ones who actually witness what happens here. They're the ones who know. It's interesting to me that, that John also says that after they had seen this sign, the disciples put their faith in Jesus. What's interesting to me is that in John chapter 1, Jesus acquires these disciples. So here they are walking with Jesus, being the disciple of the rabbi, but it wasn't until this first sign that they really began to put their faith in him. Oh, this is what this guy is capable of. Oh, this is what he's talking about. It's pretty powerful. But what does it all mean? <clears throat> well, maybe today, maybe you feel like you're in an exile of sorts. And I want you to think about this. Maybe, just maybe, you feel like you're out of balance and you're wondering who you are and why you're here. And, and have you ever been in that place where you're like, what am I doing yeah, I've been there too. Maybe God is silent and your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling or maybe you're asking the question, what's next? What am I going to do next? Maybe life just feels off. Have you ever been there? Where you just feel like, man, something is off. I don't necessarily know what it is. Maybe you're just feeling like you're in this sort of captivity and you can't put your finger on why and it's just, just out of sorts. Can I tell you that water into wine means the exile's over? Jesus is willing and able to guide and help you through that. Or, or maybe you're in one of those circumstances today where you're just holding on to something that's old. You're holding on to something that happened in the past and and, 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 and it's, it's keeping you back and it's past pain and you, you just can't get over it. You know you're supposed to, but it's like, I just can't leave this behind. Maybe it's a relationship that keeps you stuck or maybe you're holding on to some behavior that's self-destructive. Can we just call it what it is? Maybe it's just sin. Or maybe you've settled for old religion that isn't helping you in your spiritual life anymore. Can I just tell you that water into wine means that the old is made new? That there's this point when the old is made new because of what Jesus did and, and Jesus is willing to help you exchange the broken for something that's beautiful? Or maybe 
you feel desperate. Or maybe you feel like a nobody. You're in over your head, you're in too deep, and you know it. And you feel like no one cares about me or my issue. And however it is that you're feeling doesn't matter anyway, because nobody really cares. Yeah. Water into wine means that you have seen the first sign. It is recorded for you and your belief. Jesus wants you to believe in him.